Welcome to the Hillel at Home podcast, where we bring you dynamic conversations with Jewish celebrities, thought leaders, students, and Hillel professionals. Together, we'll learn, laugh, process current events, reflect on our changing world, and of course, schmooze. I'm your host, Zach Epstein, co-chair of the Hillel International Student Cabinet and a senior at the University of Texas at Austin. In this episode, we'll hear from Julie Lithcott-Hames, writer, author, and human. She shares her experience as a Black and biracial woman growing up in white spaces. Do I want to be in an environment where I seem to be like the answer to whatever goal is on their spreadsheet? I don't. Then I feel tokenized or I feel like I'm checking some diversity box that someone else got. I don't want that. It's like the golden rule. Julie is a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School, a corporate lawyer and Stanford's first ever dean of freshmen. Even with all her accomplishments, Julie has often felt that she still couldn't escape the grip that racism, discrimination, and microaggressions had on her sense of self. Rabbi and Executive Director of Hillel at Stanford University, Jessica Kirshner interviewed Julie for a Hillel at Home event recorded in July 2020. Julie, is there anything you want to sort of share with us to start us off? I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. We're talking about a really important and serious topic. And so I'm feeling the overwhelm of being the speaker who's being interviewed by the rabbi with all of these people. So I just want to say that and share that maybe as a way to offer if any of you are feeling a little worried a little unsure, a little, you know, like, let's just be in that space together. Um, We are all exquisitely human, and we have our feelings and our worries and our beliefs, and the only way we're going to make it is uh, by getting better at talking with each other. So I'm here very much in that spirit, and I'm guessing you are as well. That's my kind of framing for how I'm feeling and my gratitude for being here. You said, Rabbi Kirshner, you're worried about what you're doing wrong. And I wouldn't assume that you're doing anything wrong. I would like to just reframe that. I think we're in a moment in America where we have to ask ourselves, what the heck are we gonna do about this problem of systemic violent hate toward people who are African-American and others who have brown skin? This is one of America's first problems, and um, it remains a pressing, pressing problem. I'm aware, as I say the word pressing, that we watched George Floyd be slowly murdered because a cop was pressing his knee on George Floyd's neck, and that happened on May 30th. And here we all are in anguish about what are we going to do to achieve the America of America's ideals, which is a place of liberty and justice for all. Um, So I'm going to ask a couple of questions at the end of my little preamble here. The questions that are most on my mind that I have been bringing into conversation with countless people in the last five weeks, and I'm delighted to be here now with Hillel. But before I get to those two questions, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and why I think they picked me to be with you, because I'm not sure we've gotten to the biographical details that make me a relevant speaker on this topic today. Before I get to my personal details, I want to say this. If I say anything during our time together that pushes a button for you, pay attention to that. 
if you're starting to have feelings or, you know, something's happening in your body, in your brain, you're like, ah, pay attention to that. I'm not speaking about anyone here on this call when I say anything, right? I don't know you. Like, notice what comes up for you. Be curious about what comes up for you. We're going to be talking about race and culture and belonging and lack of belonging and who's making what efforts and what's working and what's not. And stuff may come up for you. And I just invite you to be curious. Notice it. It's valid. What's coming up for you is valid. Notice it. Okay? Maybe you'll talk about it in a Q&A, all right? Maybe you won't want to talk about it, but I want you to notice it for yourself because those are signs and signals from your psyche that something concerns you or it's something you feel vulnerable around or angry about, just notice. That's one of the best things you can do in a conversational setting like this. All right, so finally to me and like who I am and why maybe I was chosen to be in dialogue tonight with Rabbi Kirshner, I am black. I'm a very light-skinned black person. I've got a white mother and a black father and I was raised in mostly white spaces and that turned out to damage and harm me. And I unpacked all of that in a memoir that I wrote, Real American, which chronicles my journey from the innocence of childhood to discovering something's wrong with me on the basis of my skin color and performing the part of the black person who never wants to be called the N-word again. I plunge into this place of self-loathing for much of my young adulthood, adolescence and young adulthood. And finally, I come back from innocence to self-loathing. I come back to this place of self-love right around the time Trayvon Martin was murdered. And I was trying to raise my black and Jewish son in the era of Black Lives Matter. So um, how did I get this son and this daughter? Well, I fell in love with a white Jewish guy named Dan Hames back in 1988 in college at Stanford. And Dan is Jewish. And Dan's ancestors on both sides are Eastern European Jews. Okay, Dan happens to be an atheist. He's not interested in religious practice, uh, but his mother and my mother-in-law is an Orthodox Jew. So you might say I'm not exactly who she expected to bring home <laughs> that first time, all right? And that was 30 years ago, okay? So I've been to the synagogue. I have sat, you know, with the women over here while the men are over here. And the Shabbos Goy does the light switches. And he was the only black person in the temple besides me that day. And I was like, wow, okay early memories, right? But I've also sat around the Passover table and I have opened my Haggadah and I have listened to the stories and felt this real connection between the experience of the African diaspora and the experience of Jews fleeing Egypt. You know, I have seen those synergies on the page and I have felt them in my heart. And I've raised my son and daughter, Sawyer and Avery, with the understanding that you are descended from some of the most reviled people on the planet, Blacks and Jews. You come from people who survived what was done to them, what was said to them, okay? You come from strong people who survived. And I've tried to raise them with a pride in every aspect of their heritage. So that's a little bit about me and why I'm interested in being in conversation with the Jewish community about, frankly, anything in this moment about race. And what I want to just close with is that I'm pretty certain that all of us, regardless of our background, we all want to know we matter. We all want to live a life of dignity where we feel safe, seen, and heard. And I think Jews and Blacks 
in this country have had cause for, you know, a long, long time to question whether we're safe here, you know, to question whether we are safe. And lately, we've had greater cause to fear for our safety because we are in an era in America where white supremacy is back and neo-Nazism is back and both are given permission at the highest levels of our nation to be themselves, to act with hatred and violence toward us. This is a scary moment. Unfortunately, it's our moment. This is what's happening in America, but we are America. Okay, so this is our moment and we've got to be the people to figure out what to do. So my two questions are, and I hope you'll just keep them in mind. I'm not asking them of Rabbi Kirshner. I'm asking them of all of us. Do you really see black people as fully human? And of course you go, yes, of course I do. But I'm going to press you and say, do you see black people as fully human? If so, how do you know? If so, how does it show? How would your, if you've got children, how would your children know because they watch your behaviors? What's the evidence they have that you see black folks as fully human? Okay, that's the first question. The second is, what do you want to do to try to make your neighborhood, your community, your school, your country kinder and safer for black people? Those are the two questions on my mind after the murder of George Floyd. And so um, I offer them to you because I think the answer to those questions is evidence of your ability, our ability to be part of making things better or not. So with that, I hand it back over to you, Rabbi Kirshner, and I'm ready for your questions. Thank you, Julie. Those are good and deep and meaty questions. They're almost rabbinic questions. So I will just say rabbis do not corner the market on great questions. So unless you want me to call you former dean with God Hames, then you should definitely call me Jessica. And I'm hoping both you and Noah can maybe take on this first question. And what I what I want to do is, as much as possible, help everyone on this call kind of get in the shoes of, um, of a Black student who is approaching Jewish space on campus, maybe for the first time. What are the expectations, the experiences, the fears or anxieties that they might be bringing into a first Shabbat dinner or a coffee date or a tabling experience or even just like the walk by of a building that has Hillel or Jewish writing or, you know, sort of whatever on the outside. Um, Noah, I'm curious from your own experience at GW, if you can sort of dial back to those first moments, what did that feel like for you? Um, and what, uh, and Julie, whether you want to roll it back 30 years or you want to think about from your perspective as a former dean of freshmen who very to like that first experience. Um, what is that like for people who also identify as Black, whether they identify as Jewish or not? I think on our campuses, we really, we have both populations and I want us to be thoughtful of both. Yeah, I think that the first thing I want to highlight is actually about how a lot of the foundations of self-confidence, these kinds of situations starts in your own community and around leaders in your own community. So for me, I was very lucky enough to be raised in an environment that really instilled a sort of confidence in my Black and Jewish identity while also understanding that everyone might not have that same confidence and might not necessarily look at me and view me the same way. So I'd had many experiences growing up in different Jewish spaces where, you know, I'd, I'd get a lot of questions. I get a lot of people questioning whether I was actually Jewish. And I think that that's something that I carried with me, even though deep down inside, um, and every time I entered space, you know, I pushed myself to do it. There's still this sort of a underlying aspect where I was concerned about, you know, am I going to spend half of this Shabbat dinner explaining how I'm Jewish or trying to deal with a those sorts of questions. So I think that that's sort of what happens to me anytime I go into a new space. I'm glad to say that at GW Hillel, 
I did not spend, I don't think, any minutes of my Shabbat dinner trying to explain to anyone about how I was Jewish. I was a very uh, open community. I think that that comes from the leadership. So with Adina and Daniel and Rabbi Dan, who really run an organization that's open and doesn't really question people who come in the door and, and welcomes them, whether they're Jewish, non-Jewish, Black and Jewish, Black and not Jewish. For me, my experiences have been that they've all been just welcomed as community members. And I think that that definitely influenced the way that I interact with in Jewish spaces on campus. Because, you know, from the beginning, I've been given an opportunity not only to be a community, but also to be, you know, a leader and given leadership opportunities to really uh, interact and, and be involved in organizations and, and planning different events. And I think another part of that comes from, you know, events that I saw planned, not my initiative, not because I'm Black and Jewish. So I said, oh, there's this issue we need to highlight, but because I think people at GW Hello deeply care about what's going on in our communities. So in my freshman year, I remember there's a panel about the Black and Jewish relationship in the United States of America um, that was co-sponsored with the NAACP. And this is not something that, from my knowledge, any specific Black Jewish person brought up. It was something that was just brought up by both communities because they thought it was something important. So I think the seeing that people feel the responsibility to be there for all members who might be entering this Jewish space for GW Hello, whether they're Black, Jewish, non-Jewish, really set the tone. And I'm really grateful for that. Julie, I, w I wonder if there's something maybe especially from the perspective of a Black person who is not Jewish approaching Jewish space on campus. Not that everyone has the same feelings in any way, but could you give us some sense of what some of the range of questions or expectations or concerns might be? Yeah, I think for a Black person uh, showing up anywhere, you want to know you're safe. And I think that probably applies to Jews as well and other people. When we're members of marginalized groups, we don't want to go to spaces where, you know, we might open the door and they've got the Confederate flag in there, right? We don't want to go to spaces that seem to be hostile to us. So we're looking for clues that the space is safe, you know? And so the question is, well, what are the clues? Well, one clue is there are people like me already there, you know? So one of the challenges when you're trying to build a critical mass, you're trying to get those sick Black and Jewish students at Stanford just going to come to Hillel, well, they might be hoping there are already six Black folks there, so they can be number seven through 12 instead of one through six. You know, it takes a pretty uh, special, strong, confident person to be, you know, to strike out and say, I'm the only one and I'm fine with that, you know? And, and when our parents fell in love and had us and we became someone, this beautiful person like Noah, who's Black and Jewish, Noah embodies the identity within Noah, but, you know, for those who don't have the ancestry, you know, uh, which might propel you forward and say, let me knock on the door and see if I can find some friends here and feel safe, you know, when we are more of an outsider, I think we are looking for those clues. So if we don't already see people within who look like us, then we want to see that community showing up in spaces we are inhabiting. So this comes to, is Hillel sponsoring, co-sponsoring, you know, are they showing up in my community? That is another way to really extend a hand and an invitation to show up and demonstrate. Um, I say the leader of Hillel, I'm interested interested in issues germane to your community that may not be, you know, first line germane to my community, but I'm here in solidarity. I'm here to show up and show my compassion. And actually this beautiful event, horrible, beautiful event is coming to mind in one of my final years at Stanford, the Westboro Baptist Church, those expletives, they decided to pick it on the Stanford campus. And where did they do it? Right at Mayfield and Campus Drive, right by Hillel. And 2,500 Stanford students came out to 
push back or to stand in protection. It's going to make me cry, you know, to protect Hillel, basically. You know, there were like nine of these hateful Westboro people on one side of the street and 2,500 Stanford people. And I wager a good number of those Stanford people were not Jews, but were there to say, you know, you will not do this to people in my community. And it was a beautiful, beautiful showing of solidarity. So I guess I'm saying that to say when bad things happen, that's often when we show up, when we get out of our comfort zone and we go across the street to the other community or we go this and that. But we shouldn't wait for the Westboro Baptist Church to show up, you know, or George Floyd to be murdered to demonstrate that we actually care about one another. It's in the actual small acts, the day-to-day interactions, the things you show up at or don't, the way you design a panel, is it inclusive, you know, are there Black people on this panel? Are we, maybe we're doing a cross-cultural topic. It's that deliberate effort to say, I am interested in your experience. It is valid to me. And I think that then feels like a sincere, authentic invitation. I appreciate that from both of you and have a recent story from Stanford to sort of update Julie's. Westboro Baptist Church has not been back to our campus in particular since then. Um, But, you know, the whole Jewish community was impacted by uh, the shooting at the uh, synagogue in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh a little more than a year ago. And we, our Jewish Student Association held a rally in the middle of White Plaza, which is the oddly named um, kind of gathering place in the middle of Stanford's campus. And the Jewish Student Association leaders insisted they wanted to have their kind of moment of pain in the most public place possible, even if nobody showed up. And that was really their anxiety that, that no one was going to come. And in fact, hundreds of people came, including for me, the most heartening moment of the whole thing was not the university president who came or all of the faith leaders who came, which were lovely, but when the folks from Ujima House, which is one of the themed dorms that focuses on the African and African-American student community, um, when they came together in their yellow shirts, and it was just incredible to see 30 students all kind of showing up together. And it was an amazing moment I treasure, and I think Jewish students also treasure to sort of refer back to what that felt like when they showed up. We have not been able to turn that into actual relationship. We've, we're only good at showing up in sort of the crisis moments. When we try to build a relationship in between, when we do a, a bagel brunch between the JSA and the BSU, and this was an experience a student, a wonderful student leader had last year, she was so excited that she was getting this going and someone from the BSU said, yes, yes, we'd be happy to do that. And she, wait, one student who like arranged all the bagels and got it all ready and was like, thought she was excited about a great event and three people came. And the takeaway from that, from our perspective in some ways was that we didn't have the relationships yet that we needed to. And so I wonder, Julie, if you have insight, because I bet <laughs> I bet my students and my staff are not the only ones in this position. What can we be doing maybe outside of moments of crisis, though we might be an extended moment of crisis now, so maybe it's a particularly golden opportunity, but what could we be doing to be building those relationships in a real and authentic way so that they aren't just about crisis moments and big high profile things, but the in and out, the day to day of being a real community together on campus. Well, you said you learned that maybe you didn't have the relationships. You planned your bagel brunch and only three people came. 
maybe you learned that black people don't like bagels. I'm gonna reframe it as that, and I'm gonna be a little bit more serious now. Actually, I'm gonna be less serious to make the point. Like maybe you ought to have had food that's stereotypically appealing to black people. I'm not gonna go so far as to like name the stereotypically black foods, but if you are trying to welcome somebody in, one way to do it is to offer them your traditional stuff, but another way is to try to partner with them about what they might really enjoy, okay? It's, a, it's just a different way to make a connection. So I think that the more serious point here is, all right, well, what are Black folks interested in? And if we're interested in Black folks knowing Hillel or the JSA, what did those organizations need to demonstrate so that that invitation feels authentic? You know, maybe it's a group of folks in JSA t-shirts or Hillel t-shirts who go over to Ujima, the Black theme house on the Stanford campus, and it's equivalent to BSU, wherever you are, you know, showing up at their events with t-shirts that visually show like the Jewish community came out for this. You know, that, that as you discovered in the wake of the Squirrel Hill massacre, when folks in the Jewish community did an event in White Plaza and all the Ujima kids came over and they in their yellow t-shirts, your heart probably, you know, just leapt and tears fell. Like, look, they're here, right? So what can be done in a less charged, less emotionally gut-wrenching situation to just show up? You know, let me, let me try to make an analogy here. When I was the dean of freshmen on my campus for 10 years, my mantra was, I have to be visible, credible, and relevant. If students are going to come see me when they have problems, which is why I'm here, to believe in them and support them, help them feel seen and heard when they are feeling in crisis or worried or unsure, before they're ever gonna come to my office, they have to know I'm visible, credible, and relevant. If I'm not visible, they won't know who I am. So I have to show up in the spaces that matter to them. I have to go to their step shows. I have to go to their bagel brunches. I've got to go to their sports games. I've got to go to their debates. i got to go to their dorm speaker series. I need to show up and be visible if I have any hope of being relevant and credible. Relevant is demonstrating that I care about the issues they care about so that I can be conversant in the things that matter to my students. And then credible is just the quality of my own analysis, rhetoric, thoughts, ideas, opinion. The, the whole question of whether I'm credible is only germane if I've first been visible and relevant. And so I offer that back to the JSA and to Hillel. What can you do to be visible, relevant, and credible in other people's spaces? Because I think that's the way to really begin to build a meaningful, trusted relationship. I want to zoom back to sort of Hillel as space that tries to be a home for people. And some of us are focused on, on really just the Jewish community. And some of us are trying to operate at a slightly bigger level on our campuses uh, for both Jewish and non-Jewish students. So I think this question could go in either direction or both directions. But after we get past the moment of welcoming. I mean, hopefully we will do as well as, as Adina and the team at GW Hillel have done for Noah, though we don't always. But if we're able to do that, what are the things that we need to do after, after we get that first welcome right, to make sure that we can be their campus home for the long term? 
And some of the things that come up for me as I thought about this was how do we support the leadership of Black Jews and other Jews of color without overwhelming them? And I think sometimes about my experience as a, a congregational rabbi that sometimes when you get like a young adult would wander into synagogue and everyone at the Oneg would pounce on them. Be like, oh my God, we're so excited you're here. We now we have 20 things for you to do and join this committee and meet these people and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the person's reaction would be like, awesome. But most of the time it would be like, okay, this is really too much for me. So how do we kind of get that welcome right so that it is sincere and long lasting? And what steps can we take to help elevate people's leadership without overwhelming them? And particularly in the case of Black Jews and other Jews of color, how do we make sure they feel like they are just as capable and appropriate and welcome at the center of our Jewish communities on campus without tokenizing them, without making them feel like they've been put on display? Yes, these are good questions and they're hard, Jessica. I should be calling you Rabbi K or Rabbi Kirshner, but you've said Jessica's okay. These are hard questions and I applaud you for asking them. And I have thoughts. So the first is this. You said, how can we move from our welcoming to make it feel like home? So what I want to ask you back is, what feels like home? We all have a sense, when we hear the word home, if we have a positive association with home, then positive things come to mind about how home feels. Home is a feeling, not a location. Home can be anywhere. You know, we parents feel anguish the first time our child goes off to college and refers to college as home. We go like, but this is home, honey. But actually, it's a really great thing if they feel that college feels like home, because that means usually safe, secure. I feel like I belong. The people here like me. I've got friends. I feel empowered. All of that. All right. So you got to ask yourself, what can you do to the environment to make it feel more like home? And you don't need to survey people. You just go into yourself and ask, well, what kind of environments feel like home for me? You know, what, what can we do to make this space more welcoming? And I have a very specific thought, which is if you want to entice more students, we all know the first thing you got to have is food. Free food is going to bring students. But what else? You know, what if you had the most cushy, soft, amazing space to study in? We know they would fall asleep probably and not study, but that's fine. If they're like, let's go to Hillel, you know, because they've got those awesome couches, you know, that's not bad because then they're in Hillel and then they're seeing all the posters and the flyers and then people are walking through and they start to get a, see, a, a sense of the vibe of the place. Maybe what I'm saying here is don't force it too much. You know, a development of a relationship is organic. A sense of home, if it's to develop, is going to be organic. It's going to take time. So I think it's a good thing to be concerned about, but ultimately the answer lies within you. What feels like home to you and others? See if you can recreate that environment. Now, how to elevate the leadership of Black Jews without pouncing on them? I think there's this sort of neediness. You know, if the one Black Jewish kid walks in the doors of Hillel and everybody's on him, you know, what that would tell me is they need me. And my mind would say, do I need them? Do I want to be in an environment where I seem to be like the answer to whatever, you know, goal is on their spreadsheet? I don't. I don't want that at all. Then I feel tokenized or I feel like I'm checking some diversity box that someone else got. You know, I don't want that. So I think let's just go back to it's like the golden rule. And I don't know whether the golden rule came out of the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Torah or something else. So for, forgive me if I've offended people by mentioning the golden rule. Maybe it goes by a different name. Hillel's very good at 
about it, actually. You do not do to any person. Okay. So the golden rule, what I'm trying to say is like, how do you want to be treated? When do you feel comfortable? When do you feel a sense of belonging? If you show up in a space and six people are on you, I don't care who you are, unless you're a narcissist, you're going to be like, back off. This is uncomfortable. Okay, so the, the right answer here is, again, within you. How would you like to be treated? If you walk into an organization, you don't want to be ignored, right? None of us wants to be ignored, right? But we don't want to be overly attended. There's a nice mix there, right? So someone can come up and say, welcome, I'm so-and-so, um, I'm the such-and-such, let me know if you have any questions, you know, and just walk away, you know? In other words, you're bringing people in slowly as opposed to kind of pouncing. And then you want to know, does somebody's leadership want to be elevated? Don't assume because all of a sudden you've got these black and Jewish kids that they want their leadership to be elevated. You might want that for the sake of the organization, but does the individual want that? right? This is where mentoring and advising conversations happen. And it should sort of organically happen that some of the students, if well mentored, might find themselves saying, you know, I really like this place. I feel really seen and supported here. You know, maybe I'll go out for this summer opportunity they have, or maybe I'll run for this and that. You know, the best thing you can say to a kid is, I think you ought to run, you know, you'd be great at this position. If you want to run for it, let me know and I'll write you a letter of recommendation. Okay. You support by saying, I see you in this role. I'm not telling you you have to do it, right? But should you be interested, I am in your corner. I will write that letter. I will make that phone call, right? That's a great way to show a young person that you believe in them without making it about your need for them to be in that role. You see the difference? You know, yeah. you want, you don't want to be dragging people to opportunities or pushing them from behind. You're just trying to be alongside them saying like, hey, you know, I really like the way you did that. Let me know if you want more opportunities. We've got this and that coming up in three weeks. You know, it's casual, you know, and that kind of casual approach that's just about seeing and reinforcing the good things that you see, that helps draw people in. So Julie, I wonder if we could kind of pick up on, on the edge of that. You, you speak in a really beautiful way about how to just like take like identify with your own experience, get in touch with what you would want to need and help to create that for other people. I wonder also if you have insight into what might be happening for black students over the course of their college experience that isn't obvious to their white or white passing friends, that me consulting kind of my lived experience is not gonna help me get to the totality of their lived experience. And I wonder, can you help kind of shine a light into what some of those moments or experiences might be for them? and then what I in some ways really, really want to know is how can we as a Hillel community or a Jewish community on campus, how can we help support students in those moments that might be really crucial to their college experience, but also different from ours? Well, Noah and I were having a great conversation on Noah's Instagram about Black identity. And we spoke of double consciousness, which is W.E.B. Du Bois's term for how, you know, we have our own sense of self, but as Black people in this country, and we're not the only people to experience this, but just centering blackness right now. The second part of the double consciousness is we are constantly aware of how we're being perceived by white people, but also by the white narrative about black people. So there's this sort of scepter that hangs over us, which is the 
white stereotype fear about blackness and black people that we're constantly aware of. It's like the white people around us are interacting with their own feelings about black people as they're interacting with us. Okay, now if we grew up in white environments, we're used to it. If we grew up in mixed environments or predominantly black environments, coming to a predominantly white PWI institution can really be jarring. So what is happening to black students on the college campus? They might be, you know, hearing all kinds of things that make us feel uncomfortable from stupid jokes to implications that we don't belong because we're only there to check some diversity box that we don't have what it takes to really succeed on this campus. You know, you took my friend's spot, that kind of stuff. You know, just sort of shitty things, if I may say so. And um, this can really start to damage the self. I know that from my lived experience. And I'm a pretty strong, confident person. And yet racism, all that microaggressions, as we call them, all that stuff ate away at me and I think tends to eat away at a lot of people when these things happen. So you've got to assume that some of that as part of the identity formation, which is happening in the college years, is happening to black students. Someone in a classroom has said something shitty. Someone in a classroom, a professor has said something obnoxious. If you go on Instagram today and look at black at and fill in the name of the independent school, high school, so many black students in predominantly white schools and colleges are telling their stories about uncomfortable things that have been said to them or about them in high school and in college. So this is a reality. Not to, I'm not saying it always happens. I'm not saying every class is this way. But if you're trying to understand the experience of Black kids, you know, as they come to, to campus, presume that there may be some of this kind of, you don't belong here, you know? What sport do you play, right? The assumption that you're at this school, you must be, a, you know, an athlete who is here only because you play a sport and don't have the intellectual aptitude to thrive here. I got asked that question. Oh, you're at Stanford? What sport are you on? Or, oh, you're a twofer, you know, black and female, whore, 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 you know? I mean, it's hard. So, know that. Know that there's prejudice and bias, racism in the environment, and it hurts, okay? And you know this as Jews, you know this, because you hear this stuff too, all right? This is one of the things we have in common, right? As I've taught my children. So here's the way forward. As I said in my opening, we all want to feel safe, seen, and heard. We all want to know we matter, right? Black Lives Matter is not about being black supremacists. We're just trying to say, can't black lives matter too? Well, how do you show a human that they matter? I have some thoughts on that. You try to treat the person as if they're your best friend, okay? When I see David Hornick and Pamela Hornick, who are dear friends of mine, when I see them, my eyes light up because they're my friends, okay? I'm interested in them. I'm interested in what's happening in their life. I care about them and my face shows it. The trick is for us to try to have that approach with all humans, particularly those we're about to instead stereotype. Okay, so with a mindfulness practice that I have worked hard to learn about and develop and cultivate, I will own this as what's going on in my head. I am capable, of course, of stereotyping people. And through my mindfulness practice, I've taught myself to notice a stereotype coming up. So if I'm the administrator at Hillel, or I'm the head of the JSA, or I'm the person in the Jewish community who's putting on an event, and I've got my stuff laid out, right, and people start to come, I'm now inviting you to do what I do, which is notice that you're about to stereotype 
stereotype someone if you are. It might be someone who's got some kind of clothing on that suggests they're a part of a religion different than yours. Or maybe their gender presentation has you a little bit confused. Or maybe their skin color is causing you to have a stereotype come up. Or their socioeconomic status as a parent in their clothing and however else we infer how rich or poor someone is. Or their sexual orientation. When you notice a stereotype coming, you can train yourself to say to yourself, hey, I'm about to stereotype this person. Let me see if I can't treat him the way I would treat David Hornick, okay, my friend, all right? You tell your brain that, your brain goes, oh, I'm not supposed to stereotype. Let me see if I can replace this stereotype and pretend this person is my friend or myself. Do unto others as you want done to you, right? This is something we can all do in every moment. You just show up, put a smile on your face and interest in your eyes and act like you care about the person. And you will be astonished at how doors open in the relationship. All of a sudden they feel relaxed. They feel safe. They feel seen because you're not showing up with that sort of face that's like stereotype, stereotype. You're just like, hey, great to see you here. I don't think I've met you yet. I'm Julie. What's your name? Wonderful. Tell me something about you, right? You just get in a conversation because you're acting like you care about the person. That is actually how we all want to be treated. Okay, so I offer that as an example of how to work on undoing the implicit bias in you. We all have implicit bias because we grew up in this society. You know, this is a way to undo it. And it's a way to be the person who is the antidote to the black student or any student who's stereotyped on the basis of their background, who's been having a bad experience or two on the college campus where they have encountered people who are not nearly as lovely as you. You have highlighted some of the things, sort of parallel experiences, not the same, but remarkably similar that Jews have had and Black people have had in America and through the course of our history. And yet we're sort of at this moment when many Jews are perceived as white or white passing, as rich, as with extra access to resources, as holding a fair amount of power. And sometimes the physical structures that we occupy on campus might reinforce some of those perceptions. We, many of us have big, beautiful Hillel buildings, et cetera, sometimes even on campuses where Black students are struggling for that kind of recognition and that sense of space. And I wonder if you have thoughts about how we might approach both on the interpersonal level and on the institutional level, um, reflecting sort of sincere desire to build relationship while knowing that some of those complicated dynamics that kind of exist in our bigger world also exist on our campus. And I think many people within the Jewish community sometimes coming in with a fair amount of anxiety into these conversations. What is this person going to think about me as a Jew? What are their assumptions? I'm really out as a Zionist. Is that going to make this a complicated or a fraught conversation? I'm struck by the fact that these questions are deep and big and American and they're part of our world right now beyond America, and I do not have all the answers, people. So if you're looking for all the answers from me, I do not have them. My theory of change is at the individual level. Some people work on policies and structures and systems and laws and all of that's important, but my theory of change is like right here. Like, are we connecting? Are we connecting? Like, do you feel seen by me right now? You know, because if you do, maybe I'd feel that, right, this is my sense of where change happens. And um, so I'm, I'm always going to go Go back to that. So I think when you're entering a space and you're feeling like I've got this perception or people perceive 
I'm privileged. Maybe I am privileged. I'm white passing. They don't realize I'm this or that. I've got this big Hillel building with all the columns and all that. The way forward is authenticity and vulnerability. If you decide to raise your hand and speak at an event where you're not in the majority and the majority is trying to talk about their issues and you've got some thoughts, don't speak first, okay? Nothing pisses me off more than when I've given a reading or a talk on race based on my book, Real American, about my lived experience as a black and biracial person and somebody non-black always raises their hand they're the, you know they've they've ooh, ooh, right and there aren't any black people with hands raised so i have to call on them and they start to say this is just like what i experienced over in my white white and i'm like really i just did this talk about my experience as a black person and now you're going to go make it about how similar it is to yours so that person i'm not saying that person shouldn't raise their hand and shouldn't speak but what they should say is Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's really brought up a lot of things for me. A lot of stuff I didn't know. And there's some ways in which I'm feeling some similarities. I appreciate I have not had the same experience as you. I can't possibly know what it's like to be you. But it did bring up for me, da-da-da-da, from my own experience, which feels in some ways similar, right? There's a way to say, I care, I'm interested, without making it all about you when you're in a space that belongs to somebody else. Okay. Another way to put it is, and I'm sorry, you see, I'm very long-winded. We're supposed to go through 200 questions and I can't even get through one. But the other thing that I want to say here is when you acknowledge, I'm not sure I have a lot to say here, or you acknowledge your own limitations, that actually makes you more trustworthy. You know, so my own beautiful daughter who who is biracial, part Jewish, part black, part Yorkshire coal miner from my mother's people, you know, she has said, mom, you know, I'm of color, but people don't know it when they see me. And they say, you know, bad things about black people. And I say, you shouldn't say that. And they're like, whatever. You know, I don't want to go the next step and say, you know, I'm black. You shouldn't say that because I know I haven't had the experience that the typical black person has had. She says, mom, I don't want to appropriate an experience I haven't had. I said, baby, all you need to do is say who you actually are. You may not realize it. I have very light skin, but I am part black. And this offends me, right? Just own it. Own what you perceive as your limitation and then you will be more trusted as you speak. Beyond Jewish community, but thinking about people who continue to carry Jewish identity with them into other spaces, what can we, especially those of us who are white presenting, what can we do in, in majority white spaces to make them as safe and comfortable and accessible as possible uh, for Black folks right now? I think a lot of us are, are trying to figure out where can I show up? What do I say when I get there? How can I myself, with whatever privilege I have, be a conduit for making things better and easier for other people who are struggling right now? I have one thing that just popped to mind. Sit next to the Black people. Why am I saying that? Why is it bringing tears to my eyes? Because if you ride a subway and there's a black person on the subway, you will see empty seats next to them. That's really hard. People don't want to sit next to us. So show up in that environment and sit next to the black person, okay? And don't be obnoxious and be like, hey, I'm here to be your friend. I know nobody wants to, like, don't do that. But just demonstrate with your body, I feel safe next to you. Put your body in a place that aligns with the values you say you're trying to espouse. Let your body demonstrate it. And when it's time to speak, say, you know, I have some thoughts on this, but I'm really interested. I don't know what the topic is, of course, but you might say, 
I'm really interested in what people of color, particularly black and indigenous people have to say on this subject, not to put anyone on the spot, but I'd rather make some room for folks we haven't heard from. That's another way to use your privilege. When somebody says something awful, you should stand up and say, you know what, that's not okay with me. And don't say it's not okay with me because I think it hurts the black people. Just say it is not okay with me. I am personally affronted by that. And I would like to talk with you more about where you're coming from. Like take the work on, do it. And know that the people, the black people in the room and the other people of color will be like, look at that person, you know, standing up for what's right, which happens to be about me. That's allyship. Those are some examples. A piece of what is so hard right now is that often we cannot physically be in spaces with each other. You know, we're debating, can we come back to our campuses and in what ways? And so much of what we've talked about today has something to do with, with space and proximity and how do we make that space more expansive and more welcoming. Do you have thoughts about what we can do in this like weird virtual that isn't like doesn't just fall into virtue signaling, but is like actual virtue behavior, but within the limitations that we kind of have for our behavior right now? Here's what I have asked people to do in the COVID George Floyd era. So I wrote my white family members. My mother's white, but all her people are in England. So I was writing my white American family, which is my husband's family, trying to tell them like, this has been a hard week. The week of Amy Cooper plus George Floyd. I just wrote like, this has been a hard week for black people. And I tried to make it abstract, like hard for black people. But I was hoping they would be like, oh my gosh, you're you're my black family member. You know, let me connect. And I might've emailed 17 people. And I heard from two and, and they wrote me privately. And I said, thank you so much. But it would be so helpful if you would reply to all so that the entire family can see that one way to respond here is with compassion in writing, okay? I also had that happen in a more professional context where I had shared something I'd written or I'd said something people found poignant and they emailed me. Actually, it was a it was a Zoom chat where I was like telling my story and somebody emailed me privately. This was so meaningful. I completely agree with you. You know, these are my concerns. Da, da, da. I said, thank you for telling me. But frankly, I'm not the one who needs to hear this. Like, tell them. Okay, so sometimes you got to reply all. I realize we don't want to flood people's inboxes, but when you have something to say, that is showing up supporting Black people in this moment, reply all. Like folks need to hear your anguish, your ideas, your vulnerability, whatever it is. You are a role model. So go be that role model. I think you've given us so much food for thought, but not just thought, for action. And that is really a gift. And also the gift of your time and your wisdom. So thank you, Julie. Thank you, Noah. My last two questions. Do you see Black people as fully human? If so, how do you know? How does it show? Ask yourself that. Number two, what am I doing to make my world kinder and safer for Black people? Please ask yourself that. If Tamir Rice, who was murdered by a policeman in Cleveland in a park because he had a toy gun, if 12-year-old Tamir Rice had been named Tommy Rice, little blonde boy, we would have had police reform in 72 hours. But not enough Americans felt the anguish when a 12-year-old black boy was shot and not aided by the policeman who shot him and realized it was just a child, okay? We need you to feel anguish for our hurt. And you get this as Jews. You get this better, I think, than almost anybody else because you've been there and you are there too, okay? We are in this together, even though sometimes it seems like we're not. You get it. You know what it's like to be stereotyped, marginalized, maligned, treated with disrespect, treated violently, murdered in your places of worship. You get it, okay? We need you to take that empathy and use it. 
That wraps up our conversation with Julie Lifcott-Hames. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production at Hillel at Home and the Global Student Experiences team at Hillel International. This episode was produced by Michael Kagan, edited by Benjamin Laufer. Our theme music is by Baron Grant. If you like this show, please rate, subscribe, review, and share.